You're listening to episode five of the Journey to Launch podcast, Becoming a Millionaire on a Teacher's Salary. T minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 guys. I am so excited for today's guest. Today, I have Ed, the millionaire educator, on the podcast. It was through a podcast where I heard Ed on as a guest that I first learned about the 457 plan. If you listened to episode two of this podcast, how we saved $85,000, so if you didn't listen to that one, you can listen to it after you listen to this one, you'll know that I credit the 457 plan with changing the game on how my husband and I really upped our savings. We were able to really, really just hyperdrive our savings using this 457 plan vehicle. And I really didn't know about it until I heard Ed speaking about how he became a millionaire through the 457 plan and other savings strategy. So I really, really was excited and inspired by his story when I first heard it. And so I am so excited that he is now a guest on my podcast where he can share the ins and out of the 457 plan and just saving and investing in general. So if you are a teacher, a city worker, or just someone who is making a modest living, and hey, even if you're making you know, higher income, you can learn so much from this interview because Ed and his wife on moderate teacher salaries were able to become millionaires. So we discuss a lot in this episode. I'll just quickly run down some of the points that we talk about so you can look out for them. We discuss a little bit how he pivoted from becoming a professional basketball player to a teacher. And then we talk about how he first got his teaching job that paid only $18,000, but managed to pay off $45,000 in student loan debt and saved $100,000 in just five and a half years. We also talk about how he moved to Saudi Arabia to get that accomplished. And then how he found out about the 457 plan and how you yourself, if you have access to one, how you can start investing in one. And look, even if you do not have access to a 457 plan, there are a lot of great information and tips you can get from this interview about how to become tax efficient, how to up your savings goals, your savings rate, how to use where you live, a low cost of living area to really maximize your savings and much more. Before we get into everything, I want to just quickly go over a couple points that we mentioned in this interview. We mentioned basis points in this podcast, and I just wanted to quickly go over what basis points were. One basis point is equal to one one hundredth of a percent. So, for example, when we say one basis points, that is 0.01 percent. When we say 10 basis points, that's 0.1 percent. When we say 50 basis points, that's 0.5 percent. And then if we say 100 basis points, that's 1%. So if you hear us talking about basis points, that's what that really means. And just listen throughout the episode, you'll hear it, and then you'll understand why it's so important to understand your fees, the basis points that are on your investment accounts. So with that, I want to get started with the podcast. Before we go, 
and jump into the episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, if you are liking this, please go tell a friend and tell a friend and subscribe. If you are listening in iTunes, the best thing you can do to help my searchability, to help other people find out about the podcast is to subscribe and to rate and review the podcast. You'll be able to find all the episode notes for this podcast and all the things we talk about here on the show notes. So you can go to journeytolaunch.com forward slash episode five to get all the info. All right, let's begin. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for joining us on the Journey to Launch podcast. Before we jump right into all this great stuff, please introduce yourself to my audience. 53 years old. My wife is 51. Uh, We've been married for 20 years now, and we have an 11-year-old. And we're currently uh, visiting folks here in South Georgia. But um, let's see, it all started back in, for me... 1982, like a lot of people of, of that time period, that generation, I dreamed of being a basketball player. You know, we all wanted to be athletes back then. We didn't have internet and cable TV, so we just played sports. I played in high school, and then I played in college, and uh, I played at Davidson College, which most people probably know as Stephen Curry's college. So I played there for four years, and I majored in history, and uh, in all honesty, I wasn't a great student because I was very unfocused and most of my energies were going to basketball. But at any rate, from there, I graduated in 86, and that was our championship year. Went to the NCAA tournament, so I left with a lot of fond memories. And I ended up playing basketball in Argentina the following year, which um, was a big uh, twist of, in fate because I could barely pass Spanish in college. I had to have a year to graduate, and I somehow managed to get C's in that, and they probably wanted to get me out the door in all honesty. And from there, I I, uh, learned some Spanish and I went to language school in Guatemala and I ended up playing uh, a year in El Salvador. And when it was all said and done, I learned to speak Spanish pretty well. And that is how I ended up becoming a Spanish teacher. And I started teaching around 1992 so I had I had some lost years in there where I really didn't get much done. I, I always tell people in these podcasts that, you know, I, I did not do it perfectly. Trust me, if, if you've screwed up a lot of things, you're in good company. I did learn to speak Spanish, and I traveled in Brazil and learned to speak Portuguese passably well. But I um, had a lot of adventure, but I didn't build up any money. About 92, I got my first real teaching job. I think it paid me $18,000 on a provisional certificate and didn't look too promising. The bright spot in 1992 is I met my wife. And after a while, we decided about 1994 to go to grad school because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think she was looking for a break. And uh, we went and did our MBAs out in uh, Laredo, Texas at Texas A&M International University. And I also did another one at Southern Miss in the summers for Spanish and TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages. So I was really busy in grad school those two years. And uh, when I graduated from those programs, it was 1996. And that's when I uh, got my job in Saudi Arabia, which was very important to me because we built up $45,000 of uh, student loan debt in grad school. So I was dying to pay that off. You know, I'd never had any debt in my life. And all of a sudden, the thought of 20,000 of my of, of my uh, future dollars belong to someone else. That's not a good feeling, and a, a lot of people are just accustomed to that now, and I, it's servitude. So just a little bit to step back. So you went to undergrad on a scholarship, basically, so you, were, you didn't have any 
student loans from that? No, none. Okay, that's excellent. And I, and I want to point out something you said, because my husband actually played basketball too um, at school. So he got a scholarship and ended up going to grad school, which partly was mostly paid for through the program he was in. So some parallels there. And he was lucky also to get it paid for. But I like how you said that you you didn't do things perfectly. You felt like you wasted some years, but you still got to where you are today, which I think is important to note. Later, I'll talk about how we played catch up. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, I'll be honest, I didn't really know quite what I was going to do, but I, I did sense that some more education would help. And the programs I went to are not, it's not Ivy League or anything, but it served its purpose. It helped me get to my next step. And uh, I found that when I had those graduate degrees, boy, I sure got a lot more feedback off any job information I would see, people seemed like they wanted to employ me. So it helped a lot. So a little bit about like when you were in Saudi Arabia. So I read that you said you had $45,000 in student loan debt. And then while you were living in Saudi Arabia, you, you saved $100,000. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I, I was working um, at an, a Naval Institute teaching English there. And, you know, Saudi's a pretty austere place. There's not a lot to do. And it's a totally foreign culture. And you live on a compound. You kind of live away from the Saudis. And you're there to work. And that becomes very apparent as soon as you get there. And I think I had about six weeks before I got my first check because I was a new employee. And it was, it was a lot of money to me at the time. It was about $4,000 or maybe five. And But I just remember, yeah, I, I sent $4,000 into my student loan immediately because I had housing paid for. All I really had to pay for was my food and I think phone calls. There was no internet in Saudi Arabia at the time. So I was able to then, I would get a paycheck and squeeze it as long as I could. And I would take subsequent paychecks and send them into my loan. And I, I think it took me, I would say, 18 months to pay off my 20000 about 18 months because we did get let go from the contract at one point. So I would have paid it off even faster because I was really committed to doing that. But then I, my wife had $25,000 and we had gotten married by then. And so we, we definitely wanted to take care of that. And basically it was a repeat, um, just sending checks in and we got it paid off within 18 months also. But then we just kind of stayed a little longer about, we ended up staying about five and a half years total. In about three years' time, we were able to save $100,000. My wife had a, um, it was a full-time job that had part-time pay at one of the uh, international schools. But it paid enough money where we could buy groceries with it. So a lot of times we just saved my whole paycheck. And that's, you know, uh, how we got the $100,000. I would say about 30000 of that was from my 401k plan with my U.S. employer. And the other 70 was just my savings in that time period. Right. That's amazing. And so you guys, basically, you were focused together on this goal. Like, as you said, you used her checks to like pay for living expenses and then basically funneled most of your money to the savings goals. Yes. And, you know, I had learned about low-cost investing and I had an account at Vanguard. So, yeah, it was really sweet to get, I think I was getting uh, 3000 bucks a month, which, you know, in retrospect, I make a lot more here teaching in public school stateside. So, but at the time it seemed like a lot and I'd never been up as far as <laughs> in the black financially. It was a beautiful feeling, you know, very liberating to know you had, you know, you look down, you see 30, 40, 50,000 dollars to your name and no debt. I mean, that wow, you know, I wanted more of that. <laughs> so you decided to come back to the States and then what? Yeah, 9-11 happened. So we could see the writing on the wall and we came back and 
we ended up taking a job in LaGrange, Georgia, which is, um, you know, I'm from North Georgia originally. My wife's from South Georgia. And the, LaGrange was kind of about halfway to both places. So we stayed there and started teaching. Initially, we thought we would just teach there and, and go back overseas. But um, one year led to seven years there in LaGrange. And um, during that time, I kept investing in our, we kept maxing our IRAs. We did our 403Bs. And I can't remember what year it was. Maybe it was about 2005. I became aware of the 457. And I started funding money there. And I I wasn't real thrilled about the 457 because it was in a a variable annuity product. They had a lot of fees. So I really – I didn't like the investment platform. So I just parked it in the short-term fix. It was like cash. I was saving. You parked it in the short-term fix within the 457 plan. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's probably getting 2%, which, you know, 3% inflation, you're losing a percent a year. But the other option was to invest in a, in a say, a Vanguard fund that had a 150 basis points with the other fees, the wrap fees and all this. So I just took my chance with inflation. And I'm glad I did because from 2005 to 2009, we saved about $90,000 in the 457 account. But at that same time, we were every year we maxed out the 403B and the IRA. So at the end of our time at LaGrange, our seven years there, I think our, our net worth had, had gone from, say, 100000 to 450000 And we did a lot of things right there, but we weren't – I wouldn't say we were super frugal. We bought too much house for us. And you in New York there, you'll laugh when you hear the price I throw out. It was $157,000 for a 2,200-square-foot home, but we have our one son. We had all this room for three people, and it just got to be kind of ridiculous. with th- Unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we didn't have the, the right-size house for us. We were probably going out to eat too much. Um, during that time, probably the one thing we did very well is we just we bought two used cars and paid cash. And we drove those things for 12 years. We just got rid of them this past year. So 2009 where I had kind of a eureka moment. You know, it is at a job, you start to get a little stale and you just think, yeah, we got to do something different. And that's when I opened up a spreadsheet and a, and a Word document and the mad scientist here went to work. And I basically wrote a little plan to my wife with spreadsheets all embedded in it. And I just showed her how if we were to quit our jobs and take comparable jobs anywhere in the state of Georgia that had the retirement plans we wanted, which would be namely the 403B and the 457, we would be able to ramp up our savings probably about $30,000 a year. And that whole plan was predicated on the fact that we would have that $90,000 of 457 money, which, as you probably know, is once you separate service, i.e. quit your job, you can use that money as regular income. It doesn't have a penalty. So I wanted to step back a little bit because the 457 plan, I think, is such an important vehicle for those who want to fast track wealth, if they have access to one, that is. And then if you have early retirement dreams, you know, it's a really good method, as you just mentioned, to be able to access that money before the standard retirement age. So I wanted to step back because there are a couple of things you said just now that I thought I want to dive deeper in. So the 457 plan, when you first found out about it, did you know that that's, you know, you wanted to like retire early or did you just see it as another investment option to save on taxes and to invest and thought it was a good idea? I did not have any early retirement ideas, really. This whole fire movement, extreme early retirement stuff was 
didn't exist really. I just thought it might give me a little better um, tax efficiency, and that's why I used it. It wasn't really intentional, you know, that, oh, I'm going to use this plan and retire in five years, like Mr. Money Mustache or something like that. So I want to also go into the 90000 what that was made up of. So that number was, was it the 18000 from your 403B and then the 18000 from the 457, then the 18000 from your wife's 403B and then 18000 from her 457? No, that 90000 was just what we had put in the 457, you know, hers and mine. I forget what our balance was in our 403B and our IRAs at that point. But yeah, like I said, we had $450,000. So what that would mean 360,000 was in IRAs and, and 403Bs. And we had that 90 and the 457. And then suddenly I was very aware what I could use this for. You see where I'm going with this? Right. So it was a supplement to your, once you knew you were going to leave your current position, you knew you could access that money to help you bridge that gap. Correct. And, and, you know, looking back from 2010 to 2012, we saved a rough, well, we did save in retirement accounts, $250,000 and essentially two and a half academic years. And we pulled $30,000 a year out of those 457 accounts. So it really helped us maximize our savings. And I would say that during those three years where we saved the 250000 we probably weren't real frugal either because we still had the remains of our paycheck and that $30,000 a year. And we were living in rural South Georgia, a small area called Eccles County, Statenville, Georgia. It, you know, it cost a living. It's pretty cheap. We didn't work that plan perfectly, but what we did well, what we did perfectly was we just went into the human resource office and had them contribute the max to the 403B and 457. And then everybody thought, what are you doing? You're crazy. Well, I can imagine that a lot of people weren't doing that, right? Like a lot of teachers, in terms of the 457, who has access to one? Well, let's see. I see a lot of public school teachers have access to them. But they generally tend to be with variable annuity products, and they vary by district. A lot of government, like state and local government employees, seem to have 457 uh, programs also. And those seem to be better managed where they actually have what I would deem cost-effective plans, or you have access to index funds at reasonable prices. Sometimes you can even get you know, admiral shares or institutional shares in those state-run funds. But I would say government employees... And that, that would include what, you know, city government, policemen, firemen, and then the teachers. But the teachers generally don't have the state plan. And being a teacher, I had a higher cost plan, but still, you can do something with it. So why don't you think that more people use the 457 plan, right? Because the benefits are, if you can get it for a good fee, it's not bad. It's something, you know, that you can use towards building wealth. Why don't more people use it? That's a great question. I just... Let's see, where do I even start with this question? Because a lot of people never envision themselves saving any money, much less being wealthy. And they're told, if you save 5 or 10% of your paycheck, you're doing great. And that puts you on what a, a work career of what, 42 to 50 years? I don't want to work 42 or 50 years, but when you save just a small percentage, and you know, personal finance education is, a lot of people don't know anything about finances, and, and money doesn't come with instructions, so they never take time to learn what it is an IRA, a 403B, much less a 457, and I try to spread the word with the staff, but I, you know, I just kind of become the wild man, the odd bird. You probably know my blogging name, Ed Mills, is not my real name, it's just because I, I didn't want my students knowing my numbers, because it's all on the site. 
but I would confide things to certain teachers after a while and say, look, you need to read this and see. And they would come back the next day and ask me questions. They just couldn't believe that. I think one year we saved $106,000, my wife and I, and we did it. I mean, I'm not lying. <laughs> I'm not making money off my website. You know, I'm just trying to show people an option here. And I want to tell my, my uh, listeners that if you go to um, your website, which we'll definitely link in the notes and then I'll, we can say it now, but you have, you listed each year what you were able to save and then your salary. So yeah, I think that's just important to note because it's not like you were making $500,000 as a teacher. Like, what was your salary at the time that you saved the 100000 My first, let's see, 2002 in, La, in LaGrange when we came back from Saudi Arabia, I think my wife and I had a combined eighty-five that year. And since then, I believe our highest pay was $133,000 between us. And that's gross or net? Oh, no, that's, that's gross. That's gross. And you still were able to save more than 50% at times then. Yeah, well, and there were two periods when I went to Eccles County, 2009 to 2012. That was 250, let me, hold on, I wrote this down because I thought you might be interested. In those two and a half years, we ended up with retirement and education savings accounts. We did save $263,000, right? And then we needed a break. We took some time away from teaching and we actually took 2000. 13, 14 school year off as a family. We just homeschooled, but then we decided, well, we want to go take one more job to kind of push us over the seven-figure mark and uh, went to Douglas, Georgia, Coffee County Schools and worked two years. And in those two years, we saved $245,000. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sometimes I can't believe we did it either because it does sound impossible. I wrote a, a post about it where I just explained how we saved over $500,000 in four and a half years. But it was very intentional. At that point, I had a plan and we were starting to really get very frugal. When I say frugal, we just we learned how to live without spending a lot of money, without really compromising our lifestyle. It felt, you know, we had a great time. And that really drove that it was like hitting the fast forward button on the on the net worth. And part of that is having that extra retirement account, the four fifty seven. Because, you know, my wife and I now that we're both over fifty, we were able not only to do the to fully fund them, but do the catch up contributions. And we of course we did that. And that's how we got that one year where we did hundred and six thousand. One last component to all that or in the uh, two thousand twelve we started using a high deductible health care plan. We're all healthy and uh, we realized we hardly even went to the doctor. So we used a high deductible plan and we started a health savings account. We funded that every year since 2013, 2012. So one of the things you said was that when you left your job, one of your teaching jobs, you then were able to then access the money in the 457 plan, but you went to become a teacher in another county. Is that the case? Yes, correct. The first time we did that, 2009, we left uh, LaGrange and we went to South Georgia. And knowing full well that it would allow me one would be to access that money. And I believe I actually started pulling it out in 2010. Plan was just to get, you know, scrape by and make it through the year. And we did. And then in 2010, I started pulling from that 457 account because since we had separated service, quit our jobs, that was now fair game. We could take withdrawals with no penalty. So the withdrawal can happen when you switch school, like counties or systems. Like for example, if my husband quit his job in his school or through New York City, could he go then to another job in as a New York City teacher or would he have to go to like another total place, a county or state 
to access that money. I'm not sure how the 457 works in New York, but if he went to another school within the district, within that same point, he'd actually have to be going to another district. And the way it works in, in Georgia, every district has their own retirement plan offerings. There's no um, economies of scale. You know, there's no state plan. So every district is like, got whatever, you know, you just never know. So that's why it's very important before you jump to another job, you need to know what you're going into. And uh, <laughs> I know how to scour all those websites and get on the phone and ask people stuff. But I was wanting to say one other thing by separating service allowed me to do is it also allowed me to, to take my 403B money and roll it over to my IRA. At, at Vanguard, so I could consolidate my money all in, in one place, and that was very nice to know that you know I have you all of a sudden you have more control over your 403b investments, and I, not that I had a really bad plan because we had we did have Vanguard and we did have Tiacref that I helped get those at our district. But if you're in a district where you don't maybe you don't like the 403b plan, just know that when you change jobs in another district, you'll be able to ro- free or liberate your money. By rolling it out. So how does one then, you know, if you're a government worker or a city worker, how do you get access to what 457 plan is you can get? The access, you'll find it generally under the human resource office will have a, that information. They're usually in charge of that. And basically, uh, you just fill out some paperwork. And sometimes you'll have to meet with a rep from one of the companies that service the plan. Depending on where you are, you might actually have a couple of choices on what, what plan you could choose. But after you've you sign the paperwork, then you do the contribution amounts. You sign that paperwork, and Human Resource gets that, and it comes right out of your paycheck. And I would say, you know, as you're looking at plans, I would, I would have a very keen eye on, on fee structures, you know, to see, you know, how you're going to use the plan. Are you going to use it just to, as a, a like a savings account, or are you actually going to try to invest in the plan? And, you know, I would advise if it's got a lot of fees, I wouldn't even try to invest in it. I would just save. Me personally, I'll be looking for my next job. What do you label as a lot of fees? Is there a general rule of thumb, like above 1% or... I'm probably not the best on this one just because I am I'm an old uh, Boglehead. I I followed him for years and I know I judge everything by Vanguard or institutional shares. So I'm in my mind I'm always thinking four I can for four basis points or 0.04% I can invest at Vanguard in the total US stock market index, right? Well, people that are selling you products, they're going to say, "Oh, this product it only has 150 basis points in fees, which, yeah, that might be below the industry average. But to me, it's still highway robbery. Why should I have to buy a loaf of bread for, for $35 when I can get it for a dollar? And it so it really sits in my craw. So I, I would say when you're going past 50 basis points, to me, you're starting to get into the realm of ridiculous. Because especially if you know how you want to invest your money. I don't really have any use for an advisor because there's nothing he can do for me. Right. And 50 basis points is what percentage for my um, listeners? Yeah, it would be half a percent. There are a lot of good products you can invest in where you don't have to make any decisions and you, you pay 20 basis points. And I'm talking specifically about, say, a target retirement fund where all the decisions are built into the product for less than 20 basis points now. So yeah, when you're going past 50 basis points, I think there's some real chicanery going on. No, it's good to know. It's because I get that question a lot that, you know, how do you then measure what's too high of a fee when you are looking at different investment options in your accounts or just the account itself if you don't really have that many options? Well, let me mention something you asked uh, in the notes about a 457 plan. And I, I looked up a plan I had at my last district and it was um, a 
Aspire Financial, which I did a little research on them. And the way they work is there's you get in the fund that you want to invest in. It's pretty much any fund. And of course, I went to Vanguard and got a low-cost index fund. And then it's a 15 basis points uh, wrap fee. So that's an overhead fee that they charge on top of the right. fund fee. Okay. So it, like you say, if you had a, a – I could have 20 basis points in the investment – with that 15 basis points and let's say five on an index fund with Vanguard and Admiral share. But they also have a $40 account maintenance fee per year. Okay. And you know, I don't like that, but I'm getting access to a really good product. I'm in at 20 basis points and $40 a year. I can invest in that plan. What I don't want is a plan that's going to charge me 150, 200, up to 300, even 400 basis points a year. The thing is, I always tell people, it's your money you're putting up. You're bearing all the risk. You should walk away with the vast majority of the return and the rewards. That's not how the system is set up. It's set up to make your money their money. And I haven't even talked hardly about surrender charges yet, which all that means is when you decide at some point you want to move your money, they get to take 5% of your account. So they get to skim your account legally. I mean, I view it as legalized theft. So when you say surrender, that means you're transferring your money from one investment to another or you're changing? You're changing plans. Like say, say you took it from uh, XYZ company and you want to send it to Vanguard. You want to roll it over. They're going to charge you a fee, a percentage of your assets. And you know, if you got $100,000, my question is why should I have to pay $5,000 of my money to move my money. That's just a non-starter. So I mean, uh, to cut to the chase, if someone's trying to sell you a product with surrender charges, just say no, don't take it. Right, regardless if it's a 457 plan or not, you need to just be aware of all the fees and charges on that account. Right, and, and the, to me, that's a deal breaker right there, surrender charges. So let's talk about just general investing for retirement. Now, we mentioned who has access to the 457 plans, but what if a listener does not have access to a 457? What are the options that they can invest in? Well, they always have access to an IRA as long as they're not making way too much money. But I would imagine most of our listeners, they're regular people like us. So, yeah, you have $5,500 you can put in an IRA, and you could probably do the same for your spouse if you're married. The next thing, hopefully at your job, you have a 401k or 403b plan. Each of those would allow for $18,000, I believe, is the current contribution limit. So, you know what, $5,500 and then eighteen, we're at $23,500 that you can make magically disappear from your income. It, those are, they're tax deductible. They come off your income. So, you, not only do you save the money, you get a tax deduction. And so, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and if, you know, your spouse, we said what, uh, oh, I got here's my notes. Yeah, I said, basically, if you're married, you can save $54,000. If you have an IRA and you both have a, a 401k or 403b, so that you know most people I know they're not saving twenty seven thousand dollars a year. If you have those plans, you know it's up to you to now to, to make a plan and, and start saving. You know, and I have I didn't even mention here uh, that if you're using a high deductible health care plan, you can fund an HSA for three point uh, three thousand four hundred dollars. So that that's more money you can put away. So. There are ways to save money and get a tax deduction at the same time. Part of our plan has always to, to been to use these tax advantage plans, max them out so we would maximize our savings. And we, we pay very little in taxes. Some years, generally, we don't exceed the 10% bracket. That's uh, generally part of the plan is, you know, uh, pay, I, I believe the 10% bracket is, let's say, $865 for this year. 
So if I do a, my tax efficient plan, I'll save, you know, let's say 90,000 bucks and pay $865 in federal income tax. Which is such, I mean, when you talk about like tax arbitrage and being more tax efficient, I mean, it shows you like right there, the power of becoming very strategic with your pre-tax retirement investing. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because sometimes when you blog, you write something, you think it's kind of cool and you like it, but someone gives you feedback and they really thought it was mind blowing. Well, every year I write a post called like this year was 2017 free money exclamation point. Right. And all it is, is I go in there and I add up the standard deduction, the personal exemptions and my son's child tax credit. And I show basically how we can earn, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it's uh, $34,500 and we owe no tax. And I know New York City, that's not a lot of money, but $3,000 a month in South Georgia, you can live on that paying rent or a mortgage. And then I, I take it one more step to where I add in the remainder of the 10% bracket so I believe this year we could earn up to $43,500 and pay $865 in federal income tax. So it ends up being a, a 2% effective tax rate. So the point is, if you need to do some tax planning to kind of know where your breakpoints are and where you start entering your own personal pain threshold as far as taxation. Some people, they're fine, go through the 15, pay 25, and they're like, oh, I'm starting to feel it. Some people, they're like, I don't want to pay anything. Well, that, that's your call. But you know, you shouldn't be flying blind and just you know hemorrhaging tax money everywhere because it's something you can't plan for. You talked about how you saved or that you saved a lot of money. And part of the reason was for that was because you lived in a low-cost area, right? So you were able to keep your living expenses down and reasonable. It's not that you were too like or super frugal really in the beginning or currently like you know you're not just eating maybe beans for dinner, right? You you are enjoying your your life, but I think it's important because a lot of people will say, "Well, wow, that's a lot of money, but maybe it's because you don't have any debt, so you were able to focus most of your your income on saving and investing." What do you say to someone who who is inspired by your numbers and who's a teacher or maybe not a teacher, and but they just can't see how they'd be able to live off of less than what they live on now. Yeah, you know, I, I get a lot of questions from coworkers about how can I get out of debt? And people have dibs on your check. Until you pay it off or get rid of the asset, you're not going to be able to save anything because someone else has a claim on your paycheck. I would tell people who are inspired and want to start doing some of this, at some point, you're going to have to decide what's really important to you. You know, maybe you have too much house. Maybe you don't need two brand new vehicles. Maybe you could get rid of one and get a reliable used car for the other. Maybe you're eating out too much. You know, I see a lot of people here in the States that eat out all the time. And I'll be honest, I'm a good cook. My wife's a good cook. I'd much rather eat my own cooking than most of the restaurants where I live. So why go out and spend all that money when I can do something better at home? And uh, as far as, you know, overall enjoyment, most people can't believe how well we eat. I'm always grilling stuff and, and my wife's cooking. You know, I didn't fail to tell you this. I have a Jamaican connection. So my father-in-law's from Mandeville. So we, we have a lot of, and I grew up in New Orleans, so we like to eat. So we can all cook. We probably have way too much red wine flowing in the house at all times. I don't feel like we're living a, a life of deprivation at all. So um, I think there's a lot of people when they hear anything like frugal, they just think of miserly penny pincher who never has any fun. We're a long way from that. And then your wife, I mean, she obviously 
she had to be on board and you guys came together to make all this happen. Was it something that she was also like naturally into or is it, did it take some convincing or conversations to get her to that place? Yeah, it, it never really was a struggle. I remember probably within two months of being married, we decided to get a joint checking account. And then what do we do? We, we always kind of did things as a team anyway. Then when we started saving in our IRAs and our 403Bs, you know, I'd say, oh, wow, honey, we saved 30000 this year. And then it went up 36 And she's, oh, that's nice, you know. But it slowly, as I showed her how this the plan could be tweaked, I could see the wheels turning in her head. And she was realizing, wow, we're getting ready to do something that's pretty awesome. And she just seemed eager to jump on that and hammer it. And you can't put a price on that because if, if the spouse is on board, man, two people working together, two decent jobs. And that's how we were able to push past seven figures. You know, there was never any complaint about, oh, we don't have money because we always had enough money to enjoy a nice lifestyle. And uh, without her, I don't ever remember her saying, this is crazy what we're doing because she kept seeing the numbers. You know, she has an MBA and I, I would make a monthly spreadsheet that I would put on the refrigerator you know, like a net worth update. And, you know, various points, she said, wow, that's pretty good. You know, I see we saved 8000 last month or 10000 And that always kept her interested. And so it, it just came kind of naturally. It's not like we ever sat down and said, you know, we need to do this. Kind of just ratcheted up a little bit and it never cut into our lifestyle. Right. And then, I mean, in the meantime, too, you had, a, you had your son. So how did having a child play into that? Did you realize maybe that you couldn't save as much or it actually didn't affect it too much? Yeah, I always hear about how expensive kids are and I just never, I mean, they can be as expensive as you want them to be. He's never, I mean, he's had, you know, he's lived a great, he's had a great life, right? But I don't ever remember him saying, oh, I wish I had this or I had that. And I just don't view him as a very costly addition. And the other thing is we do so much with him. He's been, he's obviously a great source of joy. So, I mean, I would, I would argue he's paid off way more than he's, you know, we've had to put his way. (laughs) I like that thinking. (laughs) He's already paid in his, in what he's brought to your life in general. Like, so yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like being a parent. It's awesome. And you know, we, we've, the only thing that really, we put $2,000 a year in his Ed savings account since he was born and we did $300 a year in a four of uh, 529. So, I mean, that's not a ton of money. You know, we, we had good money coming in. That was kind of usually the last money we had, though, to kind of put into an account. And, you know, I always tell, I think he's he's got roughly $50,000 associated with his name for college and his little accounts. So we were able to save a little by little for him, too. Right. That's good. So you're retired now. Is that correct? Or no, not yet. Well, I'm not, I'm not working. No, it kind of feels weird to say you're retired because I have no problem taking a job and doing the 100% savings rate. And I wouldn't be opposed to doing that at some point down the road. But um, ne- next year, let's say we just took this past school year off and we homeschooled our son and we spent four months in Mexico and we're going back to Mexico in August to Merida, Mexico. And our son will be going to a, a private school there and he's going to be learning some Spanish. Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, we won't be working. We're just going to take it easy and enjoy some time off. And just in the meantime, so while you're off, is it that you're now pulling from your 457 plans? I think this year we've taken 17, I just sent a a, a distribution form in today. It's going to be $17,000 taken from uh, 457 plans. And we also, we have um, money we get from IRA distributions. We use, I don't know if you're familiar with the 72T 
Oh yeah. Distribution. Yeah, we get about eighteen, a little over eighteen thousand on that. So, um, you know, we have enough money to carry us through the year, and uh, you know, our cost of living in Mexico is very reasonable. I think we're paying uh, nine thousand pesos for an, an apartment, which is like five hundred dollars. It's a nice place too, you know. So, and school is about one hundred fifty dollars a month is what it's going to cost. So. He's going to learn Spanish and have his little buddies he'll be with. You know, that was the thing this past year. Homeschool was such a challenge for us because our son is very sociable. He's a boy. He needs to be running wild. And, you know, I, I just didn't like my wife having to be in the, the student-teacher dynamic because there's just always friction there, you know. It's a lot of time together, and uh, we're going to let him drive another teacher crazy next year. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. But I'm so inspired by your story. You know, the fact that you guys saved and invested and made some sacrifices. And not only that, but you even mentioned that you didn't you don't feel like you started correctly or you you did everything right in the beginning and you still were able to do what you did and are being you're able to craft the life you want to live and work when you want to work. And I think that's just, that's so inspiring and amazing. Yeah. And if you keep your living expenses in check, and then you ramp up your savings rate, it's unbelievable, you know? And the advantage that a teacher or a, uh, a state or a local government employee has, if you have that 457 and you switch jobs and you can use that as a stream of income, you can go to the 100% savings rate and you're on the, you know, you're going to the early retirement speed a lot. You can't go there any faster unless you're an entrepreneur making millions, right? And, uh, you know, going, going, you know, all the mistakes I made in the past, I share those because people need to know that some common mistakes and two, that you can overcome them. But like going forward, my wife and I are, we always talk about this. We're like, wow, you know, we can go take a, a job and save well over, I mean, at least $100,000 every year. I mean, every year. It, it's like guaranteed. That just blows my mind because the narrative in society is where all teachers are poor. You just said something, that, and I'm just like, I want to clarify this because I don't know if my audience is maybe thinking of this too. But you said that you you would draw from your 457 plan once you left that district or company. But then if you were working you would save that income that you were working back into 457 plans or into um, 403B accounts? Uh, both. Yeah, I'd max them all out. And, you know, I've gotten some emails and people say, well, you're cannibalizing your retirement accounts. Hey, all I know is I'm paying my bills, deciding when I'm going to work. And then when I do work, I'm at 100% savings rate, which means then I'm, my tax rate's real low. So, I mean, I feel like I'm totally in charge, which I got to tell you that it's a point of frustration for me. I see a lot of people that seem to have no financial control over their lives these days. Maybe I'm crazy, but I just don't think that's the way to live your life. So find a way to wrestle control of your your financial life. Then you can actually live the life you're supposed to live. Because too many people, they're they're like, oh, well, my job is my life. What? (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. And I think right here is a good time to wrap up and let everyone know where they can find you because I'm sure they're going to want to learn more about what you're up to, how you did it. Sure. Um, well, my website is Millionaire Educator and I have a small presence on uh, Facebook. You can find me there. And also I tweet occasionally on Twitter, but most of my stuff goes on Millionaire Educator. 
I'm changing my web page up a little bit so maybe people will find my articles a little more ease. But um, yeah, you can always you can find my contact information there. I get a lot of questions from teachers. I'll answer your questions, and you know I'm not a financial planner or anything, but I always tell people this is what I would do, and that's the way I preface my advice. So I'll link your information in the show notes and so everyone can find you, but you can find them at millionaireeducator.com. And I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me as one of your first guests. I'm very flattered and I look forward to seeing you and your husband save over $100,000 in the very near future. Uh, That's the goal. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, good luck to everybody out there and save your money. And you can thank us later. All right. Thanks, Ed. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot like I did. If you want to see the show notes, just go to journeytolaunch.com forward slash episode five. And then while you're there, come on over to the Facebook group. Let's discuss this episode some more. You can join by going to journeytolaunch.com forward slash community but the Facebook group will also be linked in the show notes. If you are enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, especially if you're listening in iTunes. And again, you can just share this with your friend, with your family member, who you want to encourage and have with you on this journey to financial freedom. Thanks again, guys, for joining me. Stay tuned for next week's episode.